Surgical Society podcast. I'm Frank Davis, the president of the Surgical Society and host of this podcast. Throughout the year, I'm going to be talking to world-leading surgeons, incredible doctors with interesting passions, and the brightest and best medical students to help you score higher in your exams. Please follow our social media, cu underscore surgstock, and rate and download this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So today I'm joined by Miss Claire Carpenter, a paediatric orthopaedic surgeon working at the University Hospital of Wales, who is also the training programme director for higher surgical training. So thank you very much for being here today. It's an absolute pleasure. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I'm Claire Carpenter. I work at the Noah's Ark Children's Hospital for Wales, and I've been a consultant there now for 11 years. I'm the mother of two. Uh, Harry, who is 14, and Erin, 17, and I'm uh, married to David, who is my husband. Um, and they, you know, are all very supportive of me and my job as a surgeon. Um, I have uh, been at the Noah's Ark, as I said, since 2011, I think it was, when I took up my consultant post. Prior to that, I did a year fellowship in the uh, Children's Hospital in Westmead in Sydney. Uh, prior to that, I did a year's fellowship at Cardiff and I did my higher surgical training uh, in the Welsh Deanery, so rotating around the hospitals of South Wales. Very, very nice. So two teenagers then as, as kids. How, how is that? Uh, challenging. <laughs> um, uh, we have our quiet days and our loud shouty days in the household um but but on the on the whole you know they tend to be now fairly well behaved and you say they're very supportive i can uh sort of from looking at your sort of cv and your career i can imagine you're very busy at times so it's, it's nice to have a supportive family yeah i think um i think they used to um they're quite independent because obviously with Sometimes um, late evenings, coming home from work, being away on conferences, um, kind of you're not there all the time. Um, I'm very lucky that um, I can now, now they're old and they're more independent, I can start to to go, I feel better actually going away the conference, international conferences and, and meetings um, when they were small. I kind of had a bit um of trouble doing that it was my own guilt more than anything but now but now they're fine so so yeah I mean um my career's kind of taken on a second peak that I can you know I can start to go away and network um further afield um and and that's great so I feel now that I've I've got the kind of the experience behind me and now I've got the time as well and talking of international conferences, I heard you're in Las Vegas for a conference. Was that is that correct? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that was the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine. Um, I went with a colleague of mine from Southampton. Uh, yeah, and Las Vegas is a funny place. Um, it it was a uh, a bit of a shock to the senses um in that it's fairly ostentatious and yeah it's an acquired taste with regards okay. to um the scene um 
but there we are. I've been there now and um, the conference was absolutely fantastic. And I think that's the advantage of going to the one to any of the American societies is that they're usually well resourced. So the conferences are, are really well organised. Um, they've got big hospitals doing big volumes of work. Um, the healthcare system is slightly different. So you've got to take some of the things they say and see if it applies to your own healthcare. So you, not everything translates equally. Yeah. So you have to kind of be a bit more analytical about how they have generated their results and how they've done their done some of their research. So, but but on the whole, you know, fantastic, fantastic opportunity. Absolutely. And it cost me, and the pound dropped <laughs> on the same day, so it cost me an absolute fortune. Oh no! So, <laughs> what? So you you still have to pay for that then, even as sort of a consultant? Yeah. So everybody has a study leave budget um, from foundation up to higher, and and actually some hospitals as a consultant, you will have a study leave budget, so you're entitled to. Uh, 30 days of study leave over three years. We, um, in, in Cardiff, we've given the study leave budget to the fellows because they are hospital contracted um, uh, kind of beyond registrar level. And, and so they don't come with a study budget. So we have, we've, we've put our allocation into their pot. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, you still have to part fund a lot of of what you do um with regards to cpd um when you know when you are a consultant so okay it, yeah it doesn't, it doesn't get any cheaper yeah and you mentioned there uh, i heard you say networking so do you still find that even as a consultant you know you obviously you've worked for a long time you still find that networking is something that's beneficial to you uh oh definitely and i think um you know at you uh, getting to new to know new people at all uh, levels and and setting up new relationships is is really good within healthcare and actually if you are able to network and communicate with people in the right place you tend to know how to get things sorted fairly quickly mm. um and and certainly networking is a skill and it's not and it's not something that comes very easily to some people. And certainly, I would say it's something that didn't really come easily when I was was a junior and did not see the value in it necessarily. Okay. Um, interestingly, I spoke to somebody about a month ago, and she was saying how she actively networks. So she goes to conferences knowing who's going to be there and will make... Um, you know we'll make conversation with people in particular areas of work so so again if you if you then meet them face to face and you wanted i don't know to discuss about gait analysis and cerebral palsy for example in the states now i know i can i can can drop so and so an email and say well remember me when i when i met you in that conference so networking is vital actually both at local regional national and international level in order to to secure you know open lines of communication with people i agree so 
Going into a bit more of your career, so you're a paediatric orthopaedic surgeon. Can you tell us sort of what operations you're doing? What does your day-to-day look like? Each day is very varied, and that's one of the attractions of becoming a surgeon is you are so multi-skilled and your and your week is is varied. So for example, um I had a, an all-day operating list today and it's my scheduled operating list. So in theory, the children who are on that list have known they've been on that list for a number of weeks. So they are elective patients, they're well, they're stable, and they come in for uh, a whole variety of procedures. The thing about coming in on a Monday is also you get children who've injured themselves over the weekend. And I, I work alongside my other colleagues and we also deal with tra- pediatric trauma that comes uh, through the into the hospital as well. So um, we had a very interesting case of a, a late presenting hip dysplasia. So he was uh, he was a 14 month old uh, child. And so he required an open reduction and an acetabuloplasty for for the hip dysplasia. And you go from that to a child who's fallen from a height and fractured their femur with bilateral wrist fractures. So so actually within pediatrics, we're probably the only subspecialty within orthopedics that's remained very varied with with regards to the anatomical areas of the body because everybody else has become very uh, um, anatomy specific so we have shoulder surgeons wrist surgeons etc so so with regards to peds we will go for, we'll basically go from wrist to foot um within the same within the same operating list which again which is why for me makes pediatrics um also very interesting so common things in peds, we see hip dysplasia, we see cerebral palsy, we see Perthes disease, and then the full the full spectrum of trauma. So, and children are very good at breaking themselves, so yeah. that keeps us very busy. So, yeah, because I was going to say a lot of surgery now has become very, very specialised, but the paediatric orthopaedic field is going to do you think it will always remain varied, or have you felt like a push? Or can you go into wrist, or can you go into you know femur, or yeah, I think in 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 big centres um, that there is a push for people to have their specialist um, area. So, so, but still, it's kind of more. Some will do um, neurodisability, so they will do, for example, all cerebral palsy and atherosclerosis, but they may still do upper and lower limb. So it's kind of more pathology specific rather than anatomy specific in in pediatrics um and again i've got colleagues who do for example adult and pediatric hip and adult and pediatric foot and ankle so so they have kind of stayed uh, anatomical um, but again they they kind of have a varied practice on top of that again it's people you know people want specialists doing high volume stuff well so I think the push will be long term that the people do get further subspecialized within pediatrics. Now something that I wanted to ask you in particular about is even early on as, as a medical student looking into trauma and orthopedic surgery myself there was there's this sort of stereotype around the type of person that goes into 
uh, trauma and orthopedic surgery. I don't have any personal experience to know if that's true. You know, talking to you, you're, you know, certainly not that stereotype. Is that something that you've seen in the field? Have you had to break past any sort of boundaries? Um, no, I th- I think actually it's my own experience has always been a very inclusive one. However, my own biases when I was a medical student was also that trauma and orthopedics wasn't the specialty for me um, because, again, it was the kind of the stereotypical at the time rugby playing male who was attracted to trauma and orthopedics. So actually going through med school, it was never on my radar that trauma and orthopedics would appeal to me at all. You got you had limited exposure um, at undergrad level. And then um, I did my what was then my house jobs and I loved surgery. Um, I've I've got a very practical aspect to me. So I love the skill, the surgical skills aspect of it. So then and but I also I also thought I was going to be a pediatrician. So it was a bit of a shock to the system when I enjoyed my my surgical job. So so I was thinking about combining pediatrics and surgery. And then I did trauma and orthopedics as part of my then basic surgical rotation. And absolutely loved it. I loved the fast pace of it. I loved the turnaround. I loved the fact it was quality of life surgery, not necessarily breaking bad news and quantity of life surgery. So, so it fit. It fit with my persona that um, you know I'm kind of I'm a bit of you know going a hundred miles an hour most of the time. You know I like I must be a typical type A personality where I love that satisfaction to know I fix something straight away and I can see it that it's fixed so so all of a sudden there was a realization that I had to kind of kind of change career path and go into go into T&O because that because that's what that's what fitted me as a person and it was also something I could see that I could do for the rest of my life and it would and it would keep me um, enthusiastic, challenged. It would give me um, that that you know you've you've always got to feel that that you've achieved something. So so for me, it, it was it was perfect, but it was a hard decision because it was it kind of was a bit of a surprise to me. So it's sort of great to hear that you always felt quite it was an inclusive you know atmosphere. But was there ever a time where you felt personally you were sort of judged or discriminated or have you ever witnessed it happen to sort of someone else in the field of surgery? Um, no, I, I haven't. Well, I haven't. I, you know, we've all, we all feel at some point in the pathway that, um, you know, things are not going your way or or it's an uphill struggle and it's very challenging. Um, I, I've heard stories um, and, and lots of stories from um, trainees and colleagues who have not been treated particularly well. Um, and certainly as, as training programme director, that, that, culture is one that is not acceptable anymore and and I do think 
largely across the Welsh deanery that that we do provide a fairly nurturing environment for training and education. Now, the healthcare system at the moment is quite a hostile environment. Um, and, and at times it doesn't feel that it's nurturing. But equally, I think it's our responsibility as consultants and trainers in order to to try and maintain that for our juniors coming through um, and for our trainees coming through so that so that they do feel they do feel nurtured, supported and, and to try and provide a rich environment for learning. Um, it, it's it's difficult. There's always a clash between the service element. So what you've got to what you've got to provide on the shop floor and how you can then put time aside to get educational opportunities. And we do also also understand that. Um, I do think I do think it's difficult for women in surgery. I think um, historically the system has been set up um, in a way that is very male oriented, for example, uh, meetings, uh, the way leadership used to run um, made it difficult for the mother at home with the two children. And and I, I found that difficulty myself, um, which, you know, I alluded to earlier. I now feel a lot more comfortable leaving my independent teenage children um to go away to conferences and things. So so I think I'm pro and that's a personal thing for me, but I'm sure lots of new mothers would would feel the same way if they were in a in in a position of of leadership or or a consultancy where they wanted to keep up to date with and keep up the network because you kind of see everybody doing it so you feel as a pressure on you to maintain that. Um so so I do think for women, it's historically been difficult. I do think that is changing with less than full-time training, um, with um, an awareness of the difficulties around maternity leave and returning to work, and also with the, with, with the difficulties of having children within, within a surgical career, because it does distract you sometimes from the long hours and the commitment. But again... Um, the system has to change to allow that because there needs to be a dependence, not a dependency, but a higher demand for women within the surgical uh, workplace. So the system does need to change and can change. We've just historically done things in a very kind of male streamlined way. Yeah, absolutely. And you say about the system, the NHS, I feel like, it's not really known for changed, but do you see it changing in in the right way? Yeah, I I think so, and I think I think it is changing. I think it is a very dynamic thing, and it, even though things don't happen very quickly um, in the NHS, or as quickly as we would like it to happen, and for all it for all its faults. The professionalism of education, you know, has significantly improved within the last five to ten years. Um, and, and again, there's a big push for it to to evolve even further. So, so yeah, I do, I do think things will change 
for the better. Um, with regards to with regards to clinical services and the um, and the current state of of healthcare services in in NHS Wales, again, I think there is a desire. Um, and an enthusiasm, certainly from clinicians, for things to change. We just need to match that up to to what the politicians are thinking and where the resource will come from for the recovery. And and the recovery has been a, just a little bit slower than than what we would have liked. Okay. And talking of making change, you founded, and it's, it's actually where we met, but um, on the Welsh Surgical Mentorship Scheme. And that aims mm-hmm. to sort of base, um, sorry, match mentees and mentors based on things like gender, ethnicity, religion. How important do you think it is, um, our, sort, our sort of scheme? Well, I think, again, it's the foundation, isn't it, to provide that nurturing foundation and environment that that, that we want to have in Wales so that if you want to enter a surgical training um, and the surgical environment, as it were, then there are people around you who have made the mistakes that you they don't want you to make. They're there for peer-peer support. They can signpost you. Uh, they can coach you if, you know, if they are senior enough. They can help you, uh, direct you to good experiences, how to pass exams, how to get through interviews, how to maximise your your portfolio, where to go when you've got free time to, to maximise your surgical experience. It, it's hopefully joining one big happy surgical club that again will, will be there if the mentee needs it. Um, again, it's something that we want to... Uh, to not to force people in it's it's not necessarily um prescriptive that is you don't have to you don't have to meet up if you don't want to but again um it's there so that you can acquire knowledge and and help you get along the surgical pathway as easy and as quickly as possible and that's what what our aim is to provide for surgical education in wales is an all-encompassing um effective and and hopefully um resort well resourced surgical education program from a sort of a, a personal level did you set this up because you felt like you maybe lacked a mentor back when you when you did it, or maybe did you have a great mentor and you want other people to share that experience yeah i mean i trained i trained locally so i set up a network of really great mentors around the region and what and what I was really aware of is if you were coming to Wales um, from outside and actually you didn't understand the landscape then then actually sometimes it was very daunting and you didn't know where to where to turn so and again you know as with a lot of things um, in in medicine and in life, if you're a very outgoing personality that tends to be able to network very easily, then yes, things like getting a mentor or a coach to help you along the way is very straightforward because it's within your within the nature of your personality. But we're not all wired that way. And so actually, if you can be introduced into that kind of network, then hopefully 
it kind of makes those things a little bit easier and they and they shouldn't be difficult because the path is already difficult if somebody lays the foundations of that path then you can travel along it's a lot quicker so 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 that was the whole point of doing it and actually you know I'm I'm also Welsh I am um you know I do love where I've come from and I really want to give back what I've I've been given and the support that I've been given and so I, I want people who who come to Wales with this with the more smaller population and the smaller feel to it is with that comes a whole network of 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 people that that you know want to want to help out and nurture and 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 help and educate the surgeons of tomorrow it's amazing I'm you know excited to see what it does in its its sort of first year We've talked a lot about uh, Wales, but let's take sort of a trip now because I know you've you travelled. You've taken a year out in Australia. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a bit about why you did that and how did it go? So again, um, in order to be innovative, to have new ideas, you have to see new systems, you have to talk to people, you have to see how things are done differently. And again, if you are trained and nurtured in one way sometimes it's difficult to kind of have a wider vision so again I I encourage all our trainees to go on an international fellowship and see how things are done differently because you bring back new ideas um, you start it opens your mind um, it allows you to think um, outside the confines um of of Wales and the and NHS Wales so so I went to I went to Westmead and I'd heard of a surgeon there by the name of David Little who had done a lot of work on bisphosphonates and and bisphosphonates now are commonplace in the management of osteoporosis um however at the time he was he was using them a lot uh to treat uh, Perthes disease uh, and um, and kind of pediatric metabolic bone conditions. Now they'd started using bisphosphonates phosphogenesis imperfecta in children, and so I wanted to go out and and learn uh, a bit more about the basic science behind it. So I had a chance to do some uh, animal research out there as well as kind of being in Sydney, which is probably one of the most wonderful livable cities in the whole world um so have a a a life experience um and also that you know they have a population of about four million in sydney so it was a big busy um uh, children's hospital in westmead so again i got to see a very diverse group of injuries many children are flown in um four or five hours in you know when they've been injured so the kind of of injuries you saw were very very different for from the ones we see in Cardiff where you know you can reach Cardiff by road um by anywhere in in Wales within about two and a half hours so so again um you know lots of infection because of the temperate climate because of the delays in getting getting them in from the peripheral centres. 
big chronic diseases because again they don't have emergent access to to big healthcare providers so so it it was a real experience uh, for me going there and also i took the the children uh, my young my eldest went to school so um yeah they had a, they had an absolute ball there you've also been to india uh, how was that so, so I went and did some polio myelitis camp, um, and um, so yeah, I went out with a, a surgeon actually from Coventry, John Clegg. He's done a lot of work in conjunction with some Indian surgeons out there, um, sponsored by Rotary International. So, so it I've been three or four times now, and. You go out, you see a lot of children with quite significant neurodisability. Um, it there was various things. It there was um, uh, uh, missed club foot, uh, polio, lo- lots of things really. Rickets, um, and yeah, you you know we would do somewhere in the region of one hundred twenty to one hundred fifty procedures within three days. Wow. So it was. It it does certainly put some of what we see into perspective um yes it it is emotional and it's also very tiring um but it's very worthwhile to help out and and support the local surgeons um out there and again lots of my colleagues within the pediatric arena do charitable work across across the globe and there are lots of opportunities um both at consultant level, actually, and at trainee level to get involved. And we've currently got a trainee who's going out to Malawi. They've taken a break in their training. So, so again, we have very transferable skills um, within, you know, within the surgical um, arena to go and support charities across, uh, across the world. And it is something I'd like to do more of um, when my children... Uh, no longer require me to do their laundry. Um, so watch this space. <laughs> How did it sort of improve you as as like a person or a surgeon, you know, doing that time in India, which obviously has a very different healthcare system than both, uh, you know, the United Kingdom and Australia? I think, um, obviously, to see the magnitude of deformity that some of these of what people will put up with and the resilience that exists within within humans when they've got when they have no option it it is heartbreaking um when you see that that they haven't been uh, managed prior to you meeting them but you can't change the whole healthcare system out there um the throughput of throughput of patients and the number of surgeries obviously makes you very efficient in your surgical skills because you have to get through quite a quite a lot um of of procedures very very quickly there's no there's no time downtime necessarily in sitting in the coffee room and discussing plan a plan b plan c these are all very structured straightforward procedures that that you're just getting through and then you do have to um, resolve your own emotions um, and 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 kind of get through it. it. You you wouldn't be human if it if what you saw didn't affect you. Um, but equally, 
um, you know, you know you're going to contribute to something that is really, really very worthwhile. Um, and again, it makes you a better doctor. The more you see, um, the more you can think outside the box. You always get um, unusual things, um, both, you know, in the UK. So there is crossover with with what you see, even, even though um, maybe the magnitude of what you see is slightly different. You, know, you wouldn't be human if some of these things didn't affect you. Can you tell us about a time in your career where you, you know, really have felt affected, be that in India or, or in Wales? Yeah, lot, lots, lots of times. You know, as a as a surgeon and a pediatric surgeon, you follow children through um, through their childhood um, to maturity, and when you then have to transition them to adult care and that and that's really difficult you've seen just like I've seen my own kids grow up I've seen I've seen a lot of children I've treated grow up I've got to know them and their families and even though you have to maintain some distance from them for you have to maintain that professionalism you can't help but but have quite strong ties and and emotions for them uh, I've had I've had children, you know, give me gifts for for what, you know, when they've left the service. And I've had some who've said they'd they'd like to go into medicine and, and be and do a job like mine, not necessarily be like me, but do a job like mine. And that's the and you know, that is the the ultimate um in you know and and so so that that's great on the, but on the other hand you know i've had i've had children who've passed away and that has been heartbreaking and and i don't deal with with that i don't deal with death very often in in our job and and the reason i don't deal with it is cuz i probably i'm not very good at at dealing with it and so wouldn't be able to deal with it very frequently so um so you know that those days were dark days and but um you know you know that you've done everything you can to help that those children and support those families and 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 those children have have left a mark um on you forever and you'll always remember them because they they mold you hopefully into the better doctor that you become Hmm. And, and what gets you through those dark days in your career? Um, knowing that, um, knowing that you've got more to give, and um, that, uh, that your time and energy was well spent, and that you know the majority of people are really, really grateful. Um, for what you do and you're in a very privileged position where you can help people and 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 you mustn't forget we we mustn't forget that uh, as doctors is even though sometimes it doesn't feel like uh, that privileged position you know we are people let you into their lives um they tell you things that that they 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 divulge uh, details that they would never tell anybody else and and you know 
having to be able to deal with that is 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 both an honor and a privilege and then and then you can you know you can hopefully help them improve and get better uh, and that and that's what drives you um because when they do get better it's a real it's a real sense of achievement and um talking about you know getting into those sort of privileged positions obviously you're the training sort of program director for higher uh, surgical training there'll be a lot of listeners who you know I can imagine will be desperate to sort of one day get one of those places do you have um any advice for for those sort of budding surgeons that are listening you know if they're in medical school or maybe foundation training you know what what advice would you give oh so surgery is is a fantastic um a fantastic career choice and it's you know i've i've mentioned a couple of stuff i do on a day-to-day basis but actually you know there are huge opportunities open that that you know i i'm not quite sure you would have that same varied opportunities if you didn't marry up your clinical skills as well as your as those your surgical skills and then with that you know there's options to go into management leadership research um you can there's there's lot there's lots of of opportunities um doctors with sports teams or um have i've got friends that do formula 1 um i've as a doctor i've done some pop concerts and had some free tickets um i do i go to i go into a school regularly um to to do clinics there and they they ask me to go and give them a, a lesson on bones i've gone into primary schools and given lessons on bones um you know huge amounts of of wonderful wonderful um varied opportunities so yes i, I would say to anyone um go into a surgical career you will not be bored you will always be challenged there will always be new one wonderfully interesting doors opening to you and and you know if you if if surgery is for you it is competitive but actually if you think every job that you do or every block you do at undergrad if you can maximize that with your experience with with what you see uh getting your getting dops uh kexes cbds written up or even if you happen to see an interesting case that's never been written up before to get involved with that get involved with audits get involved with societies that run fun things in the evenings um you know opportunities there to meet new people uh, meet mentors meet um consultants or registrars anyone who you think yeah you know they sound as if they're having a great time um and that's a great specialty um that's what that's what i would advise i would i'd also advise you know optimizing portfolios um trying to do additional stuff and getting it recognized any teaching opportunities that you have at med uh, at undergrad to postgrad um, if there's any innovative ideas, go to someone who's a bit more senior, run it past them, get it off the ground. Um, the mentorship scheme was was a, com- a collaborative idea. 
and um, one of the one of the core trainees then got a grant for it, which is excellent for his portfolio. So there's, there's lots and lots of people around who will help um, both undergrads and postgrads to, you know, to get on the surgical ladder. Oh, no, that's, I think that's um, really good advice. You said you went into a school on sort of a regular basis there. What What is it that you do at that, at that school? Um, I do a school clinic there. So uh, with children with neurodisability. So um, there's there's two big schools in Cardiff um, and one is in Panath and one is in Ely. And so we go in and uh, we basically run a clinic with the physios, the orthotists, parents come in and the children don't have to be taken out of school because they're already there. Mm. So it's um, it's great. Um, and you know, I've been to a, I've been to assemblies, um, and received because they they raise money for Noah's Ark, mm. um. So yeah, you know, having a ha- being seen and having a presence also opens other opportunities. Yeah. So. So something that we sort of like to end every podcast uh, with is. Can you tell us about uh, like a really interesting case that you've had? It can be any point in your career um, that you've that you've uh, sort of been a part of. Oh, that's a really, really put you on the spot. Put me on the spot, type, because there have been so many cases. I mean, there are lots of cases, and without picking two unusual ones that that uh will identify of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, patients i think you know for me and again hip dysplasia and developmental dysplasia or developmental dysplasia of the hip is is a really important condition for me and and we still have children who present at walking age with a dislocated hip. And we're in 2022 and these children are still walking through our clinic doors, limping because nobody's picked it up before then. And and we've got got one child who's nine and she she presented to our clinic six months ago um, and she'd, She'd moved here actually from um, somewhere else in the UK, but she was nine years old and her hip is dislocated. And unfortunately, because now of the shape of the hip, the condition of the soft tissues around it, and the um, the shape of the acetabulum, the there is nothing really from a reconstructive option that we can offer her. Um, she's absolutely fantastic. She walks around. She's very active, but she does have a limp. She does have a mild scoliosis. She does get back pain. She does walk um, on her tiptoes on that short leg on the uh, on the dislocated side, and and unfortunately, we have to wait now for her to be much older before she has a total hip replacement. And so, so, you know, for me, not to end on an interesting case, but to end on a message 
But, you know, if I have any aims in my career, I would love to see us ultrasounding all babies at birth to try and get rid of a condition that we really feel can be treated well if if picked up early when they can be treated non-operatively in a harness. An amazing sort of message to end on, an amazing episode, and thank you very much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Surgical Society podcast, where I was joined by Miss Claire Carpenter, a paediatric orthopaedic consultant surgeon. And next week, I'm joined by another orthopaedic surgeon, Mr. Chris Lavi, who has a particular focus on tropical surgery and talks to me about his fascinating time spent in Africa.